Guys, this is Succession. This is HBO. If you don't want to hear me talking about Logan Roy, talking about then don't listen to this. There are bad language words in this show. Hello! Welcome to the belligerent zucchini episode of Slate Money Succession. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. Emily Peck is here from Fundrise. Hello. This is a special one, people, because we have the one, the only, Ed Lee of the New York Times. Hello. Ed, you you are the spiritual godfather of this show. Like are you <laughs> this show makes no sense without you. I'm very honored, seriously. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for coming on the show for this particular episode, because if we need explication and untangling of media corporate machinations this is the episode that we need them timing was perfect time this one perfectly we're going to talk to you about board seats and annual meetings and rupert murdoch and sumner redstone and yes we're going to laugh at imaginary cats and piss mad kings of england as well i need to ask you i have no idea anymore like what is your job these days <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I didn't see that one coming. Um, yeah, I have a new job. I, I am now technically part of management. I have a title called assistant editor. Uh, and I am part of this new experimental group called Trust and Innovation. And what is that? What the hell does that mean? Um, yeah, is that something which they set up within like <laughs> ATN to try and mollify shareholders? <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite so, you know, not quite so brazen as that. It's more, look, Remember Innovation 1.0 or Innovation Report that uh, A.G. Salzberger worked on? I guess you could argue this is sort of the next iteration of that, right? So how do we modernize the report in a way that is keeping up with what's going on so that we can make sure we're not alienating readers and engendering trust with everybody? I, I have I have the answer for you. You have the answer. All, okay. I have the answer. Ears. All you need is a slogan saying, we hear you. We hear for you. <laughs> we hear for you. <laughs> we hear for you. You know what? I'll I'll run that up the chain. I have a feeling AG probably will not go for that, but you know, it's a definitely definitely an idea. Stay tuned for Ed Lee on Sleep Money Succession. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Okay, so let's just jump straight in here, Ed. Succession decided to go full on Sumner and Sherry. Yeah, yeah. My goodness. <laughs> I did not see that one coming, I have to admit. You know, I didn't either, but look, real life drama like is always gonna be the best anyway, so they kind of 
you know, you're going to take from, you're going to take from what, what's happened in real life and what the drama around that. So surprised me, but didn't surprise me. Emily, can you explain, explain the belligerent vegetable? (laughs) So this is Felix and Ed are talking about Sandy and Sandy, who in this episode, Sandy one, the old was in a wheelchair and was the belligerent vegetable that couldn't speak. And his daughter, Sandy two was basically the Sandy whisperer as well. He, the vegetable would whisper in her ear and then she would translate his wishes to everyone else. And I didn't even think of this until Felix and Ed started talking about it, but this is supposed to echo Sumner Redstone, the old, he's, he's passed away. Yes. He's, he's, he's gone. He's dead. It's over. He's yeah. He actually died. Yes. <laughs> he, he lasted way longer than anyone thought he yes. was. He ran Viacom as a vegetable as well. And his daughter, Sherry, was his whisperer, apparently. Now I would ask Ed to pick it back up. What's great is that there's so much one-to-one, right? Like in this episode and in real life. I mean, yeah, Sumner was in a wheelchair. He couldn't speak. He actually had an iPad sort of speak for him. But the real story around that was like, well, only Sherry could understand him apparently. <laughs> so <laughs> this is what's brilliant about the Sandy part is that like, oh yeah, his only his daughter really understands him. Right? <laughs> She's the only one who can interpret his true wishes. And of course, his true wishes is, turns out that his daughter gets a board seat. Oh, of course. Yeah. She, she gets a board seat and all the control that he had. Oh no, this is, he wants me to, to have it. I know we've had a fractured relationship, but like really like we've reconciled. This is where, this is what he really wants. And I feel really fortunate to be part of, you know? <laughs> so I have, I have questions in, in this fictional universe. The first question being, like, how did Sandy Jr., how was she not one of the three board seats to begin with? Yeah, no, that's a ca- actually a question I had as well. I mean, you have to sort of suppose certain things, right, in their, in their relationship, right, that she was sort of left off of it in the first place because they didn't really quite explain it or they didn't, they kind of glossed over it a little bit. Like, the other thing that's entirely possible is that, you know, the old man wheelchair like he still had the control regardless like she might have a board seat or she might have some shares but he's the one who really has the control right so everything sort of begins and ends with him whatever piece of whatever thing that she had didn't really matter right so she still needed his his okay right his stamp of approval to to kind of get that control and the board seat wasn't even her idea felix it was shiv's idea to sort of pull out that last minute deal towards the end i mean sandy jr was basically just carrying out her father's wishes which were basically just to screw the the roys that's the the main conceit of this episode right it's like they're trying to make a deal with sandy and stewie before the the famous shareholder vote occurs and everyone loses everything or something like that um and then sandy keeps just asking for more humiliating things like not using the corporate jets anymore um and not having a, a roy childs be ceo etc because because in stewie's wonderful words and this is the first time that we see any kind of clear blue water between Sandy and Stewie, who've always just been Sandy and Stewie. It's been like the Sandy and Stewie show. And now we can see that Sandy and Stewie are not entirely aligned, where Stewie's on the phone to Kendall, who he knows he can't trust and who he kind of hates and was very angry about. And he's like being like, like all vulnerable, vulnerable and honest and shit to Kendall. We are a complicated coalition and Sandy's the angriest fucking vegetable. All right, listen, I can salvage this. I'm on my way to talk to them. Good luck. 
fucking belligerent zucchini here has set the negotiations. <laughs> the angriest fucking vegetable, it has to be the best line in, in that episode. So I think so far this season, absolutely. And um, But you're right, Felix. I thought that was a really interesting dramatic moment, right? Because it was always Sandy and Stewie. They were like one was sort of the arm of the appendage of the other, right? Uh, but then finally, you know, Stewie comes out as sort of like, the fuck, you know, this is not basically not cool. And they're all kind of alone, right? They're all trying to find alliances, strangely. I think Shiv is the only one who sort of sort of sorted that one thing out. But even then, you're like, huh? Like, that didn't quite... That, I thought, was also the other kind of unreal... Not unrealistic, but sort of the dramatic flourish, right? As Emily, as you pointed out, it was her idea for for the old man's daughter to, to, to join the board, right? And for them to form some kind of weird alliance. And then she comes out as like, well, you know what? Yes, but what is it? A royal child cannot be on... <laughs> cannot be a CEO ever. Yeah. Cannot be yeah. a CEO. Exactly. Right. Which was that threw me for a loop, actually, but was a brilliant move. It was actually a brilliant corporate move, I think, on her. It, part. Well, it, well, it seemed brilliant to it seemed brilliant to Shiv. It did not seem brilliant to Logan. And it was halfway towards the completely unacceptable proposal that Sandy had on the table at the beginning of the episode when Jerry and Frank like walk in as Jerry and Carl I can't remember walk in all like angry and Jerry's like they're asking for the moon on a stick and it's ridiculous they want four board seats how could we possibly imagine giving them four board seats and then in the end they get their fourth board seat and everyone's like and Shiv's like this is a great triumph we gave gave them four board seats the one thing which kind of dilutes that a little bit is that they got an extra board seat. The Shiv basically tried to get herself on the board at the same time. And so that was the big question, which I one of the questions I had for you, Ed, because you understand boards a hell of a lot better than I do. To what extent is absolute number of seats important versus percentage? Like, how much does, like, giving Shiv an offsetting board seat make a difference to the fourth board seat that um, Sandy and Stewie finally it, get. It makes it makes no difference. It makes as far as I'm concerned, it makes no difference. I think I think Shiv kind of screwed that one up. You know what I mean? It's like it's I think it's good that she gets a seat at the table, certainly. I think that that's sort of a minor way. It's almost like, you know, what we've been seeing in the for the first three or four episodes is sort of the kids maneuvering around each other and they can't ever find they can't find alliances, right? And whatever sort of power this board seat gives Shiv, it's not, it's like, it's Pyrrhic at the end of the day, right? Like, so she wins something relative to her siblings, but she doesn't really win. That's because I, so I, I thought of it the exact opposite way. So I want you to expand on this a little (laughs) bit. For me, the, the only question is like, that there's no point in being a minority of three on the board or a minority of four on the board, so long as Logan can still get whatever the hell he wants. The only thing that matters is the ability to get a majority of the board to potentially outvote Logan. And that's why the countervailing force of having the shift board seat is it makes it that much harder for Sandy and Stewie to put together a coalition of, of any kind of majority on the board. And you, okay, I see what you're saying. So you think that her presence on the board all of a sudden sort of gives Logan sort of the counterweight that he needs to offset whatever, whatever the Sandy crew might end up doing. Exactly. Usually, you know, it's the controlling holder who says, this is how I want you guys to vote. And so then the board votes that way. All of a sudden you have these four, four people on the board who like are not in any way beholden to you, right? So they can do what they want. 
I think Shiv being there, yes, can be a countervailing force for Logan, but I think it's like there's this kind of nice dramatic setup to that, which is she could sort of switch sides, right? She could align herself with the four if she wanted to just to screw over her dad or if she feels like she's not getting what she wants. I think. Do we that, think that's yeah. a done deal? Do we think she is going to get that board seat? She did do that clever thing with her dad where she's like, where, you know, an extra board seat for me or Connor, just to make it look like he had a choice. But of course, he's never going to put Connor on the board. Um, do we think it's going to go to her? I don't know. I mean, yeah, this I episode, so. you think so? I, Logan, Logan yells at her at the end of this episode and is obviously displeased with the deal that she has made. And that was one of my questions again for Ed was like, and, and you too, Felix, is this or is this not a good deal? Logan clearly thinks it is not, but also he is piss mad for most of the episode. So I don't know <laughs> what to believe, but it did seem like Sandy and Stewie needed to make a deal. So it's it i don't know did shiv do a was bad logan job? right though like logan had like a known unknown right he was like why are they so keen to make a fucking deal all of a sudden what do they know that i don't you know like why did sandy and stewie suddenly like in the, at the very last minute go from asking for the moon on a stick and full fat for them and corn dogs and toenails for the logans but uh, you know for the roys and then suddenly turn around and be like, okay, we have deal space or whatever they called it. That was a weird moment. I didn't quite get that either in terms of what that, if they were relenting or something, or if there was some el other element that like we had, the other shoe hadn't dropped yet in terms of. Yeah, I think that the there. other shoe, that's one of the shoes that has yet to drop. One of the things that really struck me about this particular episode is it, it cleans up the two previous season cliffhangers, right? So the, Cliffhanger at the end of season one was, oh my God, there's going to be this huge proxy fight between the Roys and Sandy and Stewie. Who's going to win that proxy fight? And then season two was, there's this huge fight for control of the company now between Kendall and Logan. You know, is Kendall going to win or is Logan going to keep control? And what we now have halfway through season three is both of those storylines being re resolved. That the proxy fight goes away with a kind of compromise where Sandy and Stewie get board seats but no control, and Kendall becomes a completely pointless, sad, you know, woke meat muppet who everyone <laughs> takes pity on. Woke meat muppet, that's good. I like that. But, but I mean, <laughs> Kendall was working, he calls himself the puppet master at the beginning of the episode, and he is like working both channels. He's on the phone to both yeah, but, sides. But, but both and he's channels the one who are told him, Shiv, fuck off. But he's the one who told Shiv in the beginning to like make an alliance with Sandy Jr. that they had shared interests as like daughters of old, you know, piss mad slash unconscious men. Um, that was his idea. Like, and he he did push them to a deal, even though they were telling him to fuck off. Like, right. But he got no benefit. He got. But no he benefit does get a benefit because he is on the board. I think there's a question though of, and I don't know how deeply the writers are taking this, but. It's not necessarily clear that Kendall is on the board, right? I get the sense that they're following sort of the Murdoch sort of structure where the kids own shares in a trust that controls certain shares of the company, but that they're, they themselves are not necessarily on the board. That's what, what I thought. Just like Roger's Roman communications. Roman was voting on, right. in, that, in that board meeting. Roman's vote mattered because he was on the board. That could be, that could be right. So, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, we, on the board, like, it's, the it's funny the, the way that 
there's a certain amount of sort of strategic ambiguity that the writers are giving themselves here, but also like they're very good at not giving us the full sort of exegesis of like this is how the board is constructed and this is how many board seats there are <laughs> yeah. and stuff because no one ever feels the <laughs> need to say that out loud in real life. And so they're just like, you're just going to have to kind of. Yeah, but this is the stuff that I'm still, like, I was like sort of like gnashing my teeth. Well, wait a minute. Like, how, <laughs> wait a minute. This person, where do they, where do they get this? Like, how are they, are they on the board? Are they not on the board? I just was assuming that there was this sort of, you know, like I said, this Murdoch structure at play on, on the Roy side and that there was a Sumner structure at play on the Sandy side, right? And the Sumner structure was that like he owned shares he uh, he he controlled the trust that controlled the, the board. In the Murdoch case, there is a trust that the family sort of owns that controls a certain section of the votes that control the board. Right. So, I mean, I know real life is actually more complicated. So I I was just sort of like riffing off of that idea in terms of when I saw these two. But to answer the question in terms of like who really won here, right? Yeah. I yeah. kind of feel like well, clearly Kendall lost, but I kind of feel like. The Roy's ultimately lost, I feel like. I feel like they lost so much power in this deal that it's the Sandy side that like, oh, they're the real, you know, sort of Machiavellians in this deal. But the thing that this brought to mind, like it is very rare for one mogul to sit on another mogul's board. But I feel this did happen with like John Malone on News Corp at one so point. So you're this is there we go. Like you brought it right <laughs> up. So like there was this really famous maneuver that John Malone sort of pulled on uh, Rupert Murdoch um, back, I want to say it was in the 90s, where um, this is when News Corp was like one company, it hadn't split up yet. And Murdoch still had these controlling shares. But apparently, um, John Malone, who wanted DirecTV of all things, which is what, you know, was a piece that part of the Murdoch empire at the time, like, quietly bought up like controlling shares in News Corp. <laughs> at one point amounted enough that he could actually challenge Rupert because the controlling shares were actually openly traded and still are. Like, you can just go buy them. And so he didn't know it till it was too late. Murdoch didn't know it till it was too late. And so then Malone cut this deal with Murdoch where like, you know what, fine, I'll give you back the shares. I'll sell you those shares in exchange for DirecTV. <laughs> it's like literally what he did. And Murdoch had no, no out but to like, fuck it, fine, do it. And then they put up after that maneuver, the Malone maneuver, like News Corp finally put a poison pill in their in their uh, bylaws where like, you know, you couldn't own a certain percentage, more than a certain percentage of the, of the class B or the controlling shares. So he was finally able to do that. So this reminded me so much of that, where like Sandy is the Malone, I guess, in this sort of corporate drama. Or maybe she. I don't know whether to refer to Sandy as a he or a she. Well, yeah. So. Like, maybe, maybe, maybe she will, will will be happy with like Waystar. You know, there'll be like the the Waystar Royco demerger, and the and Sandy will make the will will have Waystar, and the Logans will have Royco. And the she Sandy, we don't know enough about her, right? If she really is the the Sherry Redstone character, like she's out for power, absolutely, right? She wants to like finally like be a mogul, be sort of in charge of something after so many years under her father's thumb. But it's not clear the way they wrote her, like what her real motivation is. I don't know. Maybe I miss, missed it or didn't see it. But what do you guys think? Can you remind listeners of what happened ultimately with Sherry Redstone? Because she did ultimately grab power, right? And and do some maneuvering. There's like a Me Too tie also kind of reminiscent of what's going on at Waystar Royco. 
Sumner Redstone. It's it's actually kind of fun that they, the show did this, where they finally sort of merged these two store these two sort of family ideas, right? Like the the Redstone family and the Red, uh, Murdoch family, even though in real life they never really had that much business dealings. So in real life, with with uh, Sumner Redstone, you know, towards the end of his life, he he was in a wheelchair. He couldn't speak, um, and you know, he had the votes. He controlled the company, and Sherry like really. She didn't have anything. She had sort of a piece of a piece. And so it all came down to what did Sumner want? So Sherry sort of somehow reconciled with her dad after many years of, of them being at odds with each other. And as he was sort of in his wheelchair, un- unable to speak, she was the one at his side sort of interpreting, saying this is what he wants. And basically, and here's the, here's, you know, no one has actually reported this out one way or the other. She somehow just got it without any kind of paperwork. It was not clear that Sumner ever signed over his shares to her. It's simply she said, he, this is what he wants, and then they did it, right? And so that's what she did towards the end of his life. And then when he died, finally, you know, his will was triggered. And yes, she got the portion that she was supposed to get in his will, according to his will, and did have official control. But until he died, we don't really know what he was actually saying other than Sherry. So she usurped power right before his death. His death triggered things in her will that like technically diluted all the power, but like she she had just enough of the right allies in terms of how his powers, how his shares were split up amongst like grandchildren and other children that like, and lawyers that like she effectively had control, which is the reality today. In the case of Sandy and Sandy, it's, again, I don't really know like what the daughter wants, what her relationship with her dad is, other than it's probably just as complicated, just as screwed up as Shiv's is with Logan, right? I did like that scene where the two daughters meet in the hotel, you know, corridor, basically. Um, And there is this kind of feeling of the next generation doing the deal and taking over they're both clearly competent they understand each other they can put this thing together in a way that carl and frank and jerry and stewie couldn't it's an open question whether such a deal was possible if logan had been compass mentis but maybe that's just you know for the best you know that like it's time for logan to disappear off into his wheelchair and let the next generation be a bit more competent than he is I don't think it's right how your dad sidelines you in all this. And maybe it's appropriate for me to have somebody like-minded on the board. So how about a fourth seat on the board for you? You can tell him that you screwed it out of us and my dad was losing his shit and I nearly killed him. Four seats. That's yeah. that's a lot of seats. He will like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's it is one more than three by my count. So Waystar for balance. We'll need an extra one for me. I see. Yeah, he won't love that. Okay. Well, look. It, just tell him that the fucking the markets will never let me or my brothers be CEO. Oh come on. Do you believe that? I just care if your dad believes it. Uh-huh. Uh, look, I should go. See if I can sell it. But this is this is good with Logan. I can sell it. Can you sell it? 
which is sort of the narrative that we wanted in real life that never really happened. You know, aside from Sher- Sherry finally got control, but like Viacom CBS, which is a con- you know, which is the Redstone uh, company. I mean, it's way past its prime, right? It's nowhere near. Whereas in this world, you know, the the companies that we're talking about seem sort of still on the cusp of like being okay or still being in charge of things and, and having a lot of power. While we're while we're still on the subject of corporate machinations and stuff. Do annual meetings like this still happen with lots of people up on the dais and people in person and like you and sitting in the front row and like, is that still a thing or is that a, a sort of dramatic, like we kind of needed that, that conceit for the drama of the show? So it depends on the company. Like in truth, like the News Corps of the world or like the, the Viacom CBS of the world, their annual meetings are pretty humdrum right it's such a formality the people who do show up are the crazy people right um and like they'll there's always like some guy who's like this longtime investor who like gets up to the mic and asks some ridiculous question about you know whether it's climate change this or you know i remember it was one of the news corp meetings like someone said up climate change is not real right like i'm so glad fox news is is on the case <laughs> i was like what right um Things like that happen. And the thing is, the votes are already sort of counted. So you, it's just like this weird formality. Other annual meetings, though, like the Disney one is a huge deal where like they make it like a, a real circus, like a real show. And like they make a huge presentation and all these other people come and do their thing. And of course, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, their annual meeting is famous, right, for being sort of I essentially feel, I feel carnival, like if, right? so. if Carl wanted to sort of just vamp and run out the clock he'd be like okay i'm gonna start taking questions and there would be no shortage of people asking questions and he could just answer questions instead of having to make sure that vamp carl vamp (laughs) (laughs) exactly come on come on um but no they're they're when news corp split and right during the hacking scandal that annual meeting was a circus that there was a lot happening there there was all the, all the reporters. We all showed up. Like I flew out to LA for that. I remember, um, and you know, all the crazies were there as well. But like it was like a it was this very sort of like tense sort of meeting, right? Where they had to take questions about the hacking, about the split, about like who knew what when. Um, and one guy even flew in from Australia, who was this sort of famous sort of kind of gadfly and sort of the News Corp investor circle who were like sort of like hounded Murdoch with at, at the mic over like everything basically. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so annual meetings can be can be an affair, definitely. 90% of the time, they're not, so. Also, when you're saying that people had um, sometimes have like hostile questions for leadership, I felt like when Kendall <laughs> usurps the stage at the end of this episode and starts like, moment of silence for the victims of my company like it and they would they they um pan to the audience and everyone in the audience was like rolling their eyes at him like no one seemed to be on his side at all you know i'm i'm not actually i'm not actually scheduled to speak today i would like to say this i'd like to ask you all to please join with me in a moment of silence for all the victims of crimes that took place on our watch Kira Mason. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Even if they were sympathetic to him, it was obviously just so pathetic because he has no idea how, you know, because he's Ken. 
well, that's the thing. Like he he was sort of on a roll for like a, like a, an episode or two, and then like totally broke down and it reminded me of the the towards the end of the first season remember like when he like he had that accident and like he just like comes crawling back to his dad and like you know it's like his dad sort of has it over him and so um it's just like he fucks up again in this weird way right that he just sort of lose he's he's definitely the most tortured roy for sure i i, I want to say Although Shiv's coming up now, like, looking pretty tortured because it's like she can do no right uh, uh, under her father's watch. It's like she thinks she's done a great deal here. And he's just like, you suck. Like, get out of my face. Stop buzzing around me. Yeah, but like, but she's now got, like, the respect of Carl and Frank and probably Jerry, you know, like the people who are actually running the company are looking at her and going, well, you know, you did actually manage to pull a deal out of here when we were incapable of doing it i think she's she's not just another useless roy kid apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium apple card or virtual card number Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. But can we talk about other stuff in this episode? Because I thought this was yes. this episode was basically like a zany rejoinder to anyone who thinks Succession isn't a comedy anymore. Um, it was like a screwball episode from start to finish in so many ways. The rabbit, we can start there. The dead <laughs> cat under Logan's chair. Like him saying to Carl at one point, they're like, why, why is everyone being mean to Carl? And Logan's like, I'm the only one who can be mean to Carl, which just like cracked me up. It's so affectionate and weird. Um, but I just delighted in so many of the details. The madcap, like when they kept walking up to the stage where Carl was, and you think he's getting bailed out by the next person, or was it Frank? <laughs> and then they just like kind of like are smiling at each other, but saying terrible things to each other. And then Frank has to go back out and keep talking, you know, like he's just stuck out there. And the whole like corporate smile, I, I enjoyed that so much. Yeah, that torture was pretty good. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, that's, it's sort of emblematic of just really like how companies are run. You know, there's always, there's going to be the whipping, whipping people, the whipping boys who like have to do that song and dance. Um, yeah, you, you've already cited all the best lines, Felix, I feel like. There are, there are so many good yeah. lines. There, there, the, the fucking Hercule Poirot of piss. I mean, <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah, which I need to ask, like, I am not an expert on urinary tract infections but is that remotely like do they make you go mad that i don't know i have no idea <laughs> i didn't google like, that i can yeah, only tell you that bill clinton just had a uti so we know that and he landed in, in the hospital so we know that it can be serious for old men 
that I can oh, tell you that. that right. that Connor right. did say that um, Ronald Reagan had one and nearly nuked Belgium. <laughs> is that even remotely true? You know, you know, it's like, I have a feeling like Jesse, Jesse Armstrong, the showrunner, just has like a full book of these lines that he's just wait, he just waits to use and drop in. Just the most extreme, you know, sort of lines that he'll just sort of drop in at just the right moments. And he's got to have a book of these lines somewhere. I'm almost certain he does. And the, show, the writer's room writes, they write the episodes, they discuss the structure, he comes in and sprinkles in all these lines, you know, for, and, and I'm sure all the actors are look at, with every script, they're like, do I get one of these lines? Like, where's, <laughs> where's that line that I have for this episode, right? Yes. Can, can I, uh, I mean, I do want to talk a little bit about, like, the physical infirmities of old men, which is definitely a large um, part of this episode. Logan has one of his episodes, and he does seem to be curiously binary, Logan. Like, he's either on the verge of death and completely incoherent, and, and you know, from season one, episode one onwards, or he's more or less fully in control of everything and, like, doesn't show any weakness. I don't, I, he seems to bounce back and forth. Um, in stark contrast to Sandy, who last time we saw him, I think, was fine yeah and like totally perfectly healthy yeah exactly like out there and just like you know king of the world and he was at a sex party and having a I, sex I, party I, right, <laughs> right. It, yeah. it was at tom's bachelor party was basically this like sex party underground and sandy oh, wait, was, was there San oh sandy was at he tom's was like in a room party. at the bachelor party and and everyone was like what are you old man like why are you at this sex party and he was like perfectly chill and fine with it but now he's and then and then remember in the in the sort of internal timing of the of the show, like we are, yeah, it's not that long ago. What maybe like ten weeks? I don't know. I from the beginning of season one, and he's suddenly like become a vegetable. Like when he was plotting with Stewie to take over the company, he was he was far from vegetable, and maybe that's why the Sandy Stewie coalition is fraying a little bit. And maybe that's why Ken comes out and says, I know your financing starting to wobble, which is that thing he says at the beginning is that the thing that has changed, the thing that Logan smells the weakness on that side is Sandy senior, just having a big stroke or whatever it was caused this. So you think Logan, because he, he he's also an old man, he can sort of channel. I know you're about to lose it guy. Like, so I'm going to come in. <laughs> like take this opportunity. I mean, remember in season one, like you know, uh, Logan was in a hospital room, like in a coma, right? Uh, something like that, or unconscious to the point of like they didn't know what the hell was going to go on, and that's what sort of sparked this whole succession sort of yeah. drama. But in the case of Sandy, it's like I agree, like it really came out of nowhere, like to the point where it felt a little bit like a device, right? Like it was like, oh, we're just going to sort of put him, you know, in a wheelchair and unable to like, communicate. And then, you know, his daughter will be the one. Like, of course, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, of course, this is Sherry, right? This is, these, these are the redstones. I mean, that's what, what it is to get very old. Like it slowly things get worse. And then all of a sudden they're really, really bad. That's, that's usually kind of how it goes at the end times for people. And the weirdness is that these companies allow these in our country, I guess, allow these very, very old gentlemen to be in charge and have so much power, but they're frail and like can like go MIA in their brains at any time. It's really which actually hanging brings up a great great point though. Like you know, CEOs of major corporations, whether you're like a family dynasty or not, they all have like this insurance, right? Like the company pays like this massive insurance, to sort of 
to, you know, that's why like CEOs can't like travel by themselves. They have to always have security, et cetera, because it's a liability for the company. And so they, they have all this insurance. I don't know that this is actually would be a good story. Like, I don't know if this insurance includes things like, you know, age and mental illness, you know, essentially is what, because it should, if you think about it, because there are CEOs who are 80 plus years old. Um, well, in the case of Murdoch, like 90 now, right. And Sumner was in charge of, in, into his nineties as well. So that's not good for a company. That's just not a Warren good, Buffett. Warren Buffett. There you go. Right. Can, can the shareholders like, like if, if, if it got out that Logan, the CEO of this big company was basically like unconscious and out of it at this big moment, the shareholder vote, and they couldn't make any decisions. And the company does this deal while he's out of it. And the deal is bad for shareholders, theoretically, like, isn't there like, you could, they could get sued for that. Yeah, right. As, as Matt Levine will tell you, everything is securities fraud. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, it kind of is. It you is. You want him you're... to be out of it at that moment. Because every company is at any moment sort of selling investors on the idea that the company is good, right? That it's not just solvent, but that it will be even more solvent tomorrow, right? And so every moment of a company is just this at this pitch, right? And so if at any moment that pitch is false, then you could sue as a as a shareholder, right? As a as a part owner of that company. And so you didn't tell me Logan was was debilitated. You didn't tell me that like um, you know he was basically mad. <laughs> And so, you know, that, that he could go for, up there and tell them he's Barbara Streisand. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so I mean, that's that would be sort of another interesting plot point if they ever wanted to incorporate it. Right. Because you could have like an activist come in, you know, and use that as leverage in, in kind of a suit. They, they don't need to. Which, which also does explain why Logan was keeping his UTI so secret and even Schiff didn't know about it. You know, presumably Marsha knows about it, but she was, she was gone from this episode, but Sid came back. She only had a couple of lines, but Sid's back. And I'm so happy that Sid's back. That wonderful. She did have, she has a great line where Connor's like crowing to her about um, getting put in charge of the European cable operations. So, here I was thinking about European cable and then boom, open sesame. Can you believe it? It is hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other old man, of course, in this episode is Ewan, who's much more um, on top of everything than like his than Sandy Senior or Logan, and has decided to give all of his money to Greenpeace. Well, we kind of knew that early on with his with the lawyer, right? Like when the lawyer that he got for Greg, <laughs> you were like, he's weirdly crunchy, right? Like there's, you know, it's like, what is what is this? Like, what's going on here? And like for a while, I thought like he would be some kind of more of a mastermind behind behind stuff or had more power. But no, he just ended up being sort of like a frou-frou crunchy guy. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong Which with that. Which is fine, but, but like I really, I want to get, I don't know if it's going to be this season, but when Ewan dies and Greenpeace gets all of his shares, like instead of selling the shares, does Greenpeace become this amazing um, activist investor and try and get a board seat and all of that kind of stuff? That would be amazing. That would be amazing. If Greenpeace became the activist in, <laughs> in, in you know, Waystar Royco, like that's better than reality, right? Like that was such a great scenario, right? I could, someone should advise them, right? It's like, that should be like a, a definite plot point going forward. But Greg is going to sue Greenpeace. Yeah, so I, got, I have a little bit of, of a development. 
Apparently, I, I can't technically sue Ewan while he's still alive, but I can sue Greenpeace. You're going to sue Greenpeace? Like your style, Greg. Who do you think you're going to go after next? Save the children? Because <laughs> he <can. laughs> I like. I did like when Ewan spoke truth to Greg and was like, "You need basically, you need to grow up." I'm giving all my money to Greenpeace, Greg. Um, what? Even my part? That was the first part. Why? What? Why is that the first part? I mean, how, how do you? How can you tell? I mean, because why? because Greg, your life is not a bagatelle. Because you are putting yourself in the service of a monstrous endeavor. Because, because you need to take yourself seriously, kid. Ewan is objectively wrong about that. Greg's life objectively is a bagatelle. Oh, but he doesn't want it to be. He says you have to take yourself seriously, kid. Like, it's time to grow <laughs> up. <laughs> Stop trifling oh about it. That, that, there is that wonderful bit where he tries to, like, crouch down next to jerry and have some kind of a conversation with her and she's like just go away i have no time for you (laughs) he's like he's like this little like annoying nap he's like (laughs) but he runs the notes from shiv to to frank yeah he's he's a note runner he runs the the, the one the one useful thing that he's done in over three seasons is to be a note runner i know i kind of wanted uh cousin greg to have sort of i I wanted him to have some kind of a weapon at some point right i got he, he he's sort of ripe for that and it's like it's been taken out of his hands now, at least, you know, in this because that was a whole conceit, right? Like he was just this bumbling sort of character who like could somehow potentially have a lot of power at one point because of his his grandfather, right? Like that's why that existed at all. Like his they why they even tolerated his presence because they're like, I don't know about cousin Greg, like he's the X factor potentially in all this. And then that now that's sort of gone, right? Now he's sort of relegated to like less than Tom. But he also with um with Tom, Tom and Greg have like one of the more sincere, weird, almost romantic-like relationships on the show. You can listen to me talk about this more on Slate's The Waves podcast. I think it came out last week. But they have some like weird, affectionate. There's a bromance. There's sort bromance. of like a yeah. yeah. There is a tortured bromance between mm-hmm. those two mm-hmm. that you know mostly coming from Tom towards Greg. I think more than yeah. anything. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. <right. laughs> But, but like, over the past two episodes, we're now seeing, like, a whole new relationship blossom between Logan and Tom. Yeah. Because so remember, Tom to sort of dangled himself out there. What was the yeah. episodes going? Like, Whack me on the head like I'm a dead trout. I, yeah, I will. I, just <laughs> I won't struggle. <laughs> exactly Aww. right. You know, tie me up. Do what you want with me. <laughs> you know, I'm your, I'm your slave. And... I think Logan was genuinely touched. I was like, oh, really? Like, like, what's your play? It's like, no, there's no play, you know? And then he's <laughs> like, wow, thank you, Tom. <laughs> you know, it's like, I will take you to the bathroom with me. It is very like Louis Cans, isn't it? Like the way that, um, um, like, he's like, the, 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 the most chosen person is the person I choose to accompany me to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> And they have a nice moment because Logan calls him son and everything. I mean, he's totally out of off yeah. his meds, but he calls him son. And Tom says, anytime, Pop, Papa. And he looks all, like, touched. It was like, <laughs> this is what passes for, you know, 
emotional attachment. It does seem weirdly more genuine. Like the relationship <laughs> between Tom and Logan seems more genuine to me than the relationship between Tom and Shiv. Oof. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I would Oof. definitely agree with that. Like it somehow something happened. It's almost like because Logan knows that like Tom can't get anything. What is he going to try to? He can't win anything, right? So it's almost like it sort of takes that equip part out of the equation so he can just be like a, a person with him maybe is sort of the idea the way that he interacts with his wife and like can never be an equal with her but you know he'll have these moments of sort of weakness and then turn them into just like like what we saw in this episode like he's like oh you know i'm very proud of you and i'm really into you know, you all of a sudden, and then he suddenly turns it into this sort of total cringe, like, I need to impregnate you before before I go into prison. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So she's not alone. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to step up argument. as a man for once kind of thing. Tom, are you keeping a shadow log? Watching the phases of the moon to see when I'm most breedable? No, I just, I, like, counted the days on my iCal. It's not oh creepy. Oh, my God. It's not creepy. No, it's not. Come on. I've got, like... Six more ovulation windows until all sex is prison sex. I said I didn't like the timing. Well, I think the timing's good. Like, nine to 12 months is kind of what I'm hoping I might serve. I think it's a good slot. What? Put one in for when you're out? No, no. It's, it would keep you... What? Like, not company, but... I might need something, Shiv. Okay? Otherwise, what is the point of all this? Where are we heading? Mom, I don't want to be your fucking incubator for when you're in prison doing chin-ups and, and reading now scar making it sound horrible and it's not horrible it's nice oh it's supposed God. to be nice <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so Shiv has no that. desire to have tom's babies yeah she she's tom of course tom of course wants to be the father of a roy you know well, that's it's it's his only way to sort of lock himself into the family right because otherwise whatever it's like it's paperwork. It's divorce. It's like he doesn't have to be there. But it, 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 as soon as genetics comes in, it's like, oh, he's locked in forever. So that's that's his. You guys are so card. cynical. I thought Tom just legit wanted a child. I don't. But you're probably right. He just wants to cement. Yep, his I think status. He's, it's remember like everyone's trying to to play the game here. The mistake as a viewer is to be lured into the idea that any one of these people are being genuine ever because. There's going to be those moments where they'll dangle it out there just so you can feel some affection for for the person, but really, uh-uh. no, they're all they're all playing to win. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington D.C. On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
I want to talk very briefly about Roman, who, like, Shiv obviously had a big triumph. Kendall, obviously, like, you know, every time he can't go any lower, he goes lower. Roman, like, kind of came through, like, showed that he could be a vaguely competent person who talks to the president on the phone. Everyone's like, yeah, you're saying the right thing, giving him lots of thumbs up. Like, he only had one thing to do, but he kind of did it. And he pulled he didn't it off, it yeah. Up. Yeah. I have a theory about Roman in this episode relates to Jerry, because at the beginning of the episode, when Jerry readily accedes to the idea that no Roy child will ever be the CEO, it really upsets Roman, who says something to her, like, how could you do this? Like, you don't know who's really on your side. Jerry, being the master manipulator, whatever, hears that and then very intentionally, like, lifts Roman back up. She goes out on stage at the shareholder meeting and, like, adds a line about like our brilliant chief operating officer, Roman Roy. And they show him like reacting to that being like all excited. He got the the shout out. And then it's Jerry's idea to put Roman on the phone with the raisin. It's not Roman's idea. It's no one else's idea. This is oh, Jerry. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Machinating yes. and manipulating Roman to keep him, to keep his status good. Like this is their alliance basically. You know what I mean? And her line is great. Her line is, if any if anybody here is a bootleg Logan, it's Roman. Yeah, she's laying it on really thick to keep their alliance straight because she knows she needs it. That's like how many families can you say like being a bootleg like, Logan is a compliment? <laughs> he was like, I'll take it. He's like, great, yeah. And also, is that a win? I mean, the the raisin is stepping down. He doesn't like convince him otherwise or anything. He just takes the news, right? Is that a, such a great thing? They don't want the yeah. I mean, like there wasn't much that Roman could really say on that call, but at least he he did sort of like do a decent facsimile of being a an, an an executive. The thing that I have in the back of my mind, though, in terms of the siblings, is I don't know if you remember last episode, Kendall teased what is certain to be a future episode um, when he went up to Josh Aronson and said, "I'm going to have a big fucking nervous breakdown of a party for my fortieth." The natural reaction to that was, well, obviously this is going to be like Kendall falling apart again because number one, he said it's going to be a nervous breakdown. Two, like he's still addicted to drugs. Three, like, but like at this point, dramatically, he's already so low that like, what is the dramatic purpose in bringing him even even lower? I don't know what's going to happen at this Kendall's fortieth birthday party, but I, I'm looking forward to that one. Well, he'll clearly take to the stage and do some rap. Right, like he'll, he'll oh, do please. some white man rapping. L like, to the OG, yeah, L to the OG, right? Um, <laughs> he's, he's become. <laughs> um, I think ultimately, if the idea is that like he's so brought low that like he has nowhere else, right? Like it's sort of caged animal, whatever you want to call it, or whatever metaphor best suits sort of the situation. Like he could become like some X factor, right? Like, I don't know if he's got something else up his sleeve. I don't know if like, you know, there's something we don't know about where he has some power somewhere where he could sort of really implode the the Royco family somehow. In real life, we had this very anticlimactic James Murdoch stepping down from the board of his family's company this is this past year, right? And it's sort of like at that point, you're like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, it was sort of somewhat minor news, but it was also we all knew this was happening, but it was the clearest break he's ever made from his family. And I saw him recently at the Tribeca Film Festival. Which he owns. Which he owns now. And for the whatever it is, the 10, 15 years I've been covering that family, 
I have never not seen James Murdoch in a suit, right, of some sort. And here he came out on stage. He was like sort of moderating a panel. He had like sneakers, jeans, some kind of funky polo shirt on, sunglasses. And he looked as happier than I've ever seen him ever. He yeah. definitely but looked that, different. But that's never going to happen in, in this family. The, no, the because they're, they're too, they're even more craven. They're even more sort of beholden. Even, right? even Connor has managed to get himself a job at Royco now. You're like, what, Connor? What? Exactly. He's, he's going to take Willa to Brussels to run the European cable operation. <laughs> Let's uh, finish up here with some favorite lines. I think my favorite line comes from, I think Roman gets it this, this episode. That is an imaginary cat. Now, can you please fuck off? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I love Colin running with the imaginary cat. I love that. Because Colin heretofore has been such a, like, menacing kind of presence. You know, very, I took him seriously. But then he's running with the fake cat in a paper bag. And, like, that's the end of that with me and Colin. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it got so crazy. It got so crazy. <laughs> You're absolutely right. So well, no, my favorite line, you, I think you still feel this, which is the vegetable line. So, yeah, that came from Stewie, right? Which is, it's rare for Stewie to get, like, the line of the episode. But, like, he, it's one of those ones that that repeats. He calls, he call, he goes, we are a complicated coalition and Sandy's the angriest fucking vegetable. <laughs> and then he talk, and then he and then in the next line he calls him the fucking belligerent zucchini. <laughs> the belligerent zucchini, I think. Belligerent you know, zucchini. There you go. You can't get better than that because it's like this great sort of, you know, it's it's just it doesn't make any sense. How can a zucchini be belligerent? But like you can somehow imagine that, right? <laughs> Emily? Well, as I said, I like the rabbit plot line a lot. So my favorite line, the babysitter is asking what she's going to do. Bagel, like she, you're not supposed to feed rabbits bagels. And he says, Kendall says, those rules are for fuckheads who are going to go to Tampa and leave a rabbit with a big gulp and a dozen cinnamon raisins. A little's not going to hurt. Like, what? <laughs> those fuckheads. The big gulp part is it, yeah. <laughs> a dozen cinnamon raisin. He picks like the kind of worst bagel. Wow, this has been this has been intense. Ed Lee, we love it when you come on this show so much. You are the font of all knowledge. I love being here, guys. Always. So next week we have after the godfather of Slate Money Succession this week, Ed Lee. Next week we have the godmother of Slate Money Succession. The one and only Taffy Brodessa Agner is gonna come on. It had better be a good episode. Count on it. <laughs> We need to. We, we need an episode worthy of Taffy. Taffy is amazing, so I'm sure it's going to be great. Perhaps it's the only person awesome. who could follow Ed. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> and of course, back on Saturday with regular sleep money. But until then, thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.